If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. So good evening and welcome to the Illusions of Sense. Here in this debate, we're going to consider our senses and the way in which they may or may not put us in touch with the world. We're used to a different ranges of senses for different animals. Bats have echolocation and uh, beetles sense usually with touch and usually with uh, smell. And we're wondering whether creatures have to use a different range of senses in order to survive. And yet thinking and feeling things in the way that seem palpably strong to us might actually divide us from how things really are. They might give us a sense of things being up close and personal, but do they really put us in touch with reality? And might our senses be radically limited? Might there need to be other bits of our mind and cognition which have to work overtime to overcome the limitations they set? Or is it always the case that to be in touch with the world around us and with ourselves and others, we always need to get down to and up close with our senses? So that's the set of issues that we're going to explore, and I'm delighted to have uh, three illustrious speakers for you. So immediately on my right, your left, we've got Hilary Lawson, who is a non-realist philosopher whose theory closure takes us uh, beyond Derrida to a return of metaphysics. He is also the director of the Institute of Art and Ideas and the director of this festival of How the Light Gets In. So. We're very glad to have Hillary with us. Rupert Reed is a philosopher, member of the Green Party, and is the chair of the Greenhouse Think Tank. He's written about many aspects of philosophy. He wrote a book on Kuhn and the philosophy of science, and also edited a very influential collection on the new Wittgensteinianism. And then on my far left, your, your right, we have Ophelia Darrois, who is the associate director of the Institute of Philosophy. And Ophelia's research is very interdisciplinary. She uh, publishes and writes uh, on work that spans the philosophy of mind, psychology, and neuroscience. So 
I'm going to ask all of our panelists to set out their stall for the first three minutes. And really what I want them to concentrate on is the primary question for us is, do our senses radically limit our understanding of how things are? Hillary. So most of the time we have the impression that our senses give us a pretty good idea of what's going on out there. And, and so uh, we're inclined, in fact, to think they give us a, a precise and accurate picture of what's out there. So I'm going to start out by saying something which is going to offend uh, a good part of that sensibility. Because I'm going to suggest to you that our senses don't mirror what is out there in the world. Uh, they don't provide us, as it were, with a uh, cinematic picture of what's really going on out there. Um, uh, they're not a description of what's going on out there. I think our senses are a causal response to the world. They are a way of holding the world, which enables us to intervene in it, but they don't provide us with uh, a precise picture of what is there. Imagine what's out there as being full and dense and in a sense open to the potential of how we can hold it. So what do our senses do? They take all of that open fullness out there and they turn it into something in particular. They close that openness into some things and a bit on the basis of those things we intervene. The firing of the neuron is not plausibly a description of the world. Uh, it's not a mirror of the world. It's a response to the world. The firing of the neuron is not found out in the world. It's something new, something in addition. And I'm going to propose to you that what goes on in senses, we have layers of this closure. That one I first given you of the neuron is the first preliminary level of closure, but then you have further layers of closure which hold a whole lot of neurons, hundreds of thousands, millions of neurons, as one thing. And it holds that as, as something, as the result of the creation of this new stuff, material. But there's a further way that we close our senses, which is we hold one set of, one, one sense as the same thing as another. There's nothing the same about vision as about touch. It's totally different stuff. So how do we hold them as one and the same? by another layer of closure, which is thought. And thought is the way that we hold different senses as one and the same with another layer of material. And that is that, that, that those closures as a whole add up to how we understand reality. That means, of course, there could be many other different responses to the world. There are, as it were, an infinite number of ways that organisms could respond to the world and uh, our senses are, are therefore a very small version of what is out there. Thank you. I think we'll, we're going to come back to uh, look at some of those issues in a moment, but let me now put the same question to Rupert of whether you think uh, our senses and what they provide radically limits our understanding of the world. So of course there could be and indeed are uh, very different ways in which creatures perceive the world. But does that mean that our senses radically limit our understanding of how things really are? I'm not sure that it does, and I'll try to explain why in the course of uh, the, the next hour when I get the chance. Just three minutes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, um, the, my first problem with the question is that it kind of suggests that you've got a, a yes or no answer here. You know, do our senses radically limit our understanding of how things really are or not? But I want to ask this. Where can one stand in order to answer this question? 
in order to adjudicate it between a yes and a no answer, or indeed anything in between? If the answer is something like yes, well, how on earth do we know? If the answer is no, are we standing yet further outside ourselves in order to know that we know it all? The question, do our senses radically limit our understanding of how things really are, forces upon us, it seems to me, a fake fantasy of us being able to escape our skins in order to see what we're missing or to assert that we're not missing anything. Both wings of this binary are actually equally absurd. And that's, I think, why Hillary feels drawn to resort to saying, well, I can give you a hint, and saying things like, well, you know, imagine this fullness and density. Do we really understand terms like fullness and density without having any kind of sensory relation to those terms? The real limitation here is not an existent or non-existent epistemological limitation or limitation of us only having certain sense modalities. The real limit is the limit that Wittgenstein discussed. It's the limits of sense. And when I use the word sense now, I'm not meaning sense as opposed to pure rationality or the senses we have as opposed to further possible or actual sensory modalities. I'm meaning sense as opposed to nonsense. The alleged radical limit posited by Hillary and what's on the other side of it cannot be put into words. They are nonsense. But nonsense, what's outside the limits of sense, is just nothing. This is the really crucial point. The how things really are that is allegedly something that we are radically limited from is nothing. It's nothing at all. It's like what there is outside of the universe. Nothing. Not even a vacuum. So ultimately, it seems to me that the answer, if that's the right word, to the question that we've been asked this afternoon is the question misfires. It's a fake question, one that needs dissolving, not solving. The illusion of sense in our title this afternoon shouldn't be understood in the sense of the senses, but in the sense of, well, in the way we use the words when we say in the sense of. In other words, the very idea that our senses are radically illusionary is itself an illusion of sense, i.e. it's an illusion of meaning where there is none. Thank you, Rupert. So we, we've got the idea of um, uh, something that we need to do to get beyond what our senses are limited in providing us with, and Rupert thinks that the question might be miscast. So Ophelia, do you want to take us back to the senses? Yes. Uh, um, directly in touch with reality or limiting us in some way? Before we decide whether the senses function in the right way or in the wrong way, we need to know exactly how they work. So. Just um, one thing, and, and having a better sense of what senses are will probably help with the debate, uh, and the questions of limits. So one, one way in which the, the, um, the, the question might be said, or people might think, is think, okay, all the visual illusions cases where you're presented with lines which look of the same length, but actually they're not, and so on. Um, the, the thing that we know when we look at how sensory systems work from a, a, a scientific point of view, that they work together. So maybe the kind of limits that you could recognize if you just think about one sensory modality, just vision, is not true when you look at vision once it is embedded with the other senses. And natural evolution has, has given us a variety of senses in order to correct the limit 
of the other sensory modalities. Sometimes when you don't have a right sense of the, the shape of an object, you can touch it and then you have a better sense of what it is. So just looking at these toy examples of the pure visual cases might be just uh, making a false kind of uh, trial to our senses. But another uh, aspect which I think needs to be really put into account when we have to decide on this question are the, the, the better picture of how the sensory systems work within the whole brain and the whole cognitive uh, uh, system. And it's not at all like the causal idea that I think Rupert just displayed that the science is giving us at the moment. It's not a bottom-up process when we just are impacted uh, as, as a lot of white uh, um, blank tables, and then we try to make sense of them. All cognitive systems all the way down are always trying to predict what's coming next, and they're really providing a lot of the information and correcting whatever in, you know, in incorrect or rather uncertain information is coming from the sensory systems. So now the question becomes, are these expectations, are all the things that are already in our head before we start touching, seeing, uh, or feeling things, are these things misleading? And if you look at how they've been formed, they've actually been formed through evolution and lots and lots of sensory experiences themselves. So they're not perfect but they have at least the best validity that we can hope for, given that our environments are stable, we can hope that through learning and evolution, these expectations, these ways of making sense, which are embedded all the way down, down to the, the, the very early levels of processing, are actually putting us in touch with, not with, with reality in the metaphysical sense, but what we need to know about reality in order to navigate, survive, and uh, think. Thank you. Thank you, Philia. So I, I, I want to now um, try to break away from that rather big question about the limitations. Uh, certainly, Rupert was skeptical about that, I introducing a, a sort of philosophical standpoint that might be illusory. But so, so I, I want to kind of ask you, Rupert, in a, in a more uh, neutral way, you know, how do our senses relate us to, let's not talk about reality or ultimate reality, but to our, in our environment? I mean, in what sense do we trust our senses? In what sense do we take it for granted that you can say, oh, um, I know he's here because I heard him, or there's water here because I felt it. Are these statements okay, or are they just the first step in deciding how we might be getting information about our surroundings? Yeah, I think, uh these statements are basically normally um, okay. I think if you're going to have some reason to uh, put them into doubt, you need to have some specific reason to put them into doubt, as, for example, we do have when we uh, come to have reason that we're uh, being uh, the victims of an optical illusion or something like that. Um, Hillary's uh, reasons are completely uh, general, and I don't think that uh, you can uh, make such a, a general argument. I think it, it misfires for the reasons I, I started to try to... Uh, indicate earlier. Okay, so so Hillary, can can you can you try to address that point directly? Certainly. So so Wittgenstein, of course, in his early work, uh, demonstrated that, or he tried to provide an account of how language referred to the world, and he demonstrated we can't do that. I entirely agree, uh, and it was very influential in my early uh, thinking. Um, but uh, his conclusion to that was that we should avoid making any general comments about the relationship between language and the world. And that, that uh, argument can be roughly paralleled with the conversation that we're having now about senses and reality. And that's what Rupert was saying. The trouble is that I think that Wittgenstein's 
later move, his investigations move, which is to avoid any general comments about the relationship between language and the world, um, is a failure. And I think it's a failure because in order to understand the investigations, uh, which is often said in, in the form of we, he's wandering around a language game, sorting out a few issues, trying to clear it up. In, in order to understand what he's up to, we have to understand his overall position. And his overall position is we can't escape language and describe how uh, things are. And therefore, we have to avoid making these overall comments. But the only way we understand his later work is precisely by imputing this metaphysical view, namely the view that we can't escape language uh, uh, and describe its relationship uh, to uh, uh, the world or to reality. So I don't think that Wittgenstein is ever able to avoid uh, metaphysics. Uh, he, he claims we have need to get rid of it, and uh, so forth. And the end of the Tractatus, of course, is full of some rather nice mystical stuff. Uh, but it's trying to say something. And my claim to you is that Rupert's trying to say something as well about the, the human relationship between senses and the world. And I don't think you can eradicate that. I mean, Derrida, in his own way, tried to get rid of making any overall general metaphysical claims. And I don't think we can avoid it. So I think where we find ourselves is, yes, we can't provide a, a completely <laughs> coherent, uh, as it were, uh, account, which enables us to describe, describe how things ultimately are, but we can provide accounts which are useful. And here I, I entirely agree with what Billy was saying. I think that um, what, what our senses do is they provide us with a way of intervening in the world. It's not the same thing as reality, but they provide us with a way of doing it, and we can refine that, and we can get better at doing that, and it's a remarkable thing that they're able to do this, given the fact that they have nothing to do with reality. I mean, and just one metaphor here, so we've got something that we can all get, hold on to. I want you to think of senses like flags in the wind. So if you imagine you were in a, a subterranean uh, cave, and you only had a screen in front of you with flags waving, and they were responding to the wind, now, and you'd never felt the wind, you could, as a result of looking at the flags, do stuff. You could predict maybe how they would, you could create patterns of the flags and how they might respond later. You could um, use them to uh, help you uh, drive an aircraft if you were doing it remotely. Um, you could, or a boat. The flags, though, are never going to be the same thing as the wind. They're, they're totally different sort of stuff. They're not the same thing. It's different. And that's what our senses are. They're like the flags in the wind. And the extraordinary thing is that from these flags, even though we can never get to the stuff out there, we're still then able to intervene with the precision that we're able to intervene. So, so Ophelia, do, uh, yeah. Hillary seems to be offering you the view yeah. of the senses as something which some homunculus can consult, or at least some other system can consult. Do you, do you think there is indirect, yeah, my, is that? My question, I mean, to, to keep yeah. with the, the metaphor, I mean, once you have these flags, probably the way to make sense of their movement will be getting you to a, a kind of theory about what explains their movement, which would be close enough to the existence of the wind. So what I don't, I mean, you, you, it's not as if we are navigated only no, on the I basis of sensation. That's true. I think if you, you see things moving and so on, we will try and make sense, your brain will try and make sense yeah. of it in a way which will, might not give you everything about the wind, but it will be close enough to the existence of the wind explaining the movement of the flags. So, so it's my proposal that 
we, we do indeed operate on that basis. Most of us think you know, we're trying to get closer to what's really there. I think that that's an illusion, that, that what we, we don't get closer to some ultimate stuff out there. We get better and better ways of intervening and refining. But I don't think you could, from the flags, ever get to the wind. All sorts of things might be causing the flags. And indeed, you know, they don't have to be flags. They could be bells. There are, there are all sorts of things that could be responding to the wind, just as there are all sorts of different senses that can respond to that stuff out there. Um, but they don't enable us to work out somehow what it is. You can't, from the flags, ever work out what but, it is do, if you've never come across do, wind. But do we, do we need to work out what, what there is? I mean, I'm wondering... No, I, no, I, I don't think, think we do. No, no, no. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of try and invite Rupert to come back to you here. I mean, you, you were saying, well, we, we, we can't get away from this metaphysical wondering or trying to figure things out or thinking, do we, are, are we getting closer? But I thought Wittgenstein was worried that things went wrong when language went on holiday and we stopped treating it the way we ordinarily feel comfortable with it. And as I said to Rupert, I mean, you will say... Oh, I know, he was I know he was in the room, I could hear him. Uh, if you say to me, how do you know there are pigs here? I might say, because I can smell them uh, uh, when I'm in a field. So do you think I always have to get behind that and wonder whether there's something true or false going on? Surely Wittgenstein would have thought, you're perfectly okay just to use your usual way of talking because it seems to get you around the world, no, Rupert? Yes, uh, and uh, I think it's a misunderstanding of Wittgenstein to, to think that Wittgenstein claims that we can't escape from our language. I mean, that's exactly the kind of uh, view, some kind of anti-realist view, which well, I'm claiming... he does say the limits of our language are the limits of the world, doesn't yes, he? That's a direct quote. That's a direct quote, but what you have to understand is that what he doesn't think is that there is anything that is uh, sensical outside of those limits, in the sense I described earlier. Now, that's not saying we can't escape from our language. That's, that's saying that you haven't defined what it would mean for us to escape for, for, from our language. So that the problem then comes back to you. And then you help yourself to words like stuff and out there. And my claim is that we can't make any sense of those words without reliance on the senses. So again, it seems to me that you're hoist on your own petard. So I, I think that I would accept, as I, I sort of tried to put them in parenthesis to start with, I said, let me give you a hint. Um, and just in the same way as you know, Wittgenstein in the Tractatus gives us hints in the last uh, few uh, f you know, uh, sentences of the Tractatus of what he's, what he's up to. Um, I, uh, but I'm, going to, I'm, I'm not going to get hooked on stuff. You know, if you say, well, define stuff, design fullness, I'm going to... I'm going to but whatever uh, words you use, I'll I, make I, the same yeah, move. Indeed, which, which is why, um, in general, uh, I try to avoid all of that by saying openness. Um, so I don't want to describe any, don't want to give it any character other than the character that we have the capacity to close openness into things. Do you think we understand what openness and closedness is without, for example, understanding anything about boxes or rooms? I think we always find ourselves within a network of closure. So, you know, we have a network of closure partly as a result of millions of evolution, years of evolution, partly as a result of the social use of language and so forth, uh, which we incorporate. And so I have to, yes, in, in communicating with you, I have to start off with those shared closures, which we are already... Sounds like we'd rather was, not. Was, was that a no? That's <laughs> what I want to bring us on to. I yeah. want to kind of move it forward and maybe more into your territory here is to ask whether... Um, we can't help relying on 
some metaphors or, or even from our ordinary everyday experience of middle-sized dry goods when we start theorizing. I mean, quite often people think that when they talk about particles, uh, in, in fundamental particles in physics, it's something just very, very small. And if we shrunk, we could look and see them. But of course, there's no shrinking as to that size that still leaves us with eyesight and color and form and shape in the way we're usually thinking. So aren't we kind of hamstrung in a way by using our own sensory contact with the world to inform the metaphors and the structures of our theories? Uh, I wouldn't. I, it would be a bizarre position for me to be in to put forward the account that I've put forward um, as a definitive account of the relationship between language and the world. It, this would be like I'm trying to present a realist, non-realist theory. The nature of non-realism or post-realism is that it accounts for itself um, uh, by saying this is a way which you may find a helpful way of understanding what's going on. It can't, of course, hop outside of those closures, because that's exactly what it's saying about the world, that we are, we are stuck with the closures that we make. And indeed, the account that I've given and the, the sentence I've got here at the moment, as it were, is, 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 is another closure. I can't somehow jump out of that to say, ultimately, what's going on. But I think that we can try and make better closures and more effective ones, and we should refine our theories, which is why I think the Wittgensteinian strategy, which is a sort of ostrich, like trying to put your head in the sand, look, no, we can't say anything about this. I don't think it's right. I think we can say stuff about it. It's just that we can't arrive, and we just need to try and find the best story. So if you said to me, well, look, Hillary, I just don't find your story very convincing, uh, then it's up to me to try and convince you. And if I try a lot, I've tried to convince Barry a great deal. Many times. Uh, and uh, and, and I, I have to say, I've not been very successful. <laughs> so, you know, uh, th 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 that's up to me. You know, I've got to find out some other examples or perhaps come across someone who's got a better one, which makes me think, no, this is a better way of holding the world and, uh, and, and a more insightful way. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. But, but I want to try and relate this back to something Ophelia said. So, so you are saying that we're nevertheless feeling the forces and the pressures of evolution and the ways that our, our thinking and interventions have developed. So when you end up with a closure, a particular one, might it not be the case, Ophelia, that we end up with uh, the kind of style and thinking we have because that's the one that works, and it's not by accident that it works, yeah. that it's shaped by our senses. No, that's right, but uh, coming back, and actually, <laughs> since you brought a bit of what uh, here Hilary was, was saying, is that it would be actually very surprising if the way neurons work actually fits perfectly or very specific way of talking. I mean, that's not, the operations that you know, you're saying, the closure is probably a proxy for whatever is going on at the, at the sensory levels. And maybe the word is not exactly adequate. Maybe when you think about closure, you, you're obliged to think about these metaphors. 
But we have ways, especially mathematical models, which we don't need to translate in these nice of kind of rooms and <laughs> boxes, which make pretty good sense of, of how neurons work and how they actually sort of filter information through and how they respond to the world. And of course, you can't then come with your, your simple concepts and a couple of sentences and find a way to describe this functioning. So if, if nature was so kind to us that the operation and the evolution had, had done everything so that we could then understand it, that would be kind of but mystical. I but I think you may have misunderstood what I'm saying, Ophelia. The, the terms fit or perfectly, these were not my terms. I mean, I think these are the terms that Hillary and you are more or less comfortable with. Hillary wants to say something like, they don't really fit at all. You want to say something like, they fit more or less perfectly. I want to say, I don't understand where we could possibly stand in order to adjudicate in a completely general way whether they, uh, whether they fit uh, or, or not. Um, what I want to say is that the, if you will, the primary uh, phenomenon um, uh, as Wittgenstein or Merleau-Ponty might put it, uh, the primary phenomenon um, is um, our understanding of the world, our interactions with the world, our interactions with each other, uh, which includes, among other things, fundamental ways we have of, uh, of expressing ourselves in language. And I don't think there's any such thing as going back behind that or beyond it to adjudicate it and say it. And those ways uh, of interacting don't actually fit or do actually fit. But could it be distorting? I think this is the question we're trying to get at. Yeah. Could, it, could it be that we read back into some of the story about uh, the causal organization of uh, the brain and some of its functioning, we read back into it some of the talk that you're you are relying on uh, wrongly. People start talking about bits of the brain that are judging or thinking oh, or yeah, making sure. decisions. Yeah. So, so isn't that a kind of mistaken way in which we're taking what's fundamental at this level Mm -hmm. thinking it simply will be transplanted into yeah. scientific or physical description. Sure, I'm sympathetic to that thought. I would see that as a sort of potential confusion of levels. Mm -hmm. So levels are okay. Ophelia, I mean, as long as we respect the levels. Well, I'm, I'm not sure, because you seem to, say, to suggest that there, you don't have the right contrast. So you can't say, here the senses are work, you know, they fit or they don't fit, because you can't sort of step aside. In the yes. But surely there are cases where they work better or worse, and isn't it sufficient for drawing that distinction and sort of understanding when there are cases where, especially when you look at two senses working together, so you know, vision tells you something and touch denies it. So then you have to reconcile and you realize that sure. vision was wrong. That's a contrast. So it is telling sure. you that there is something like a way of fitting things. But that's always, um, to some extent, an unusual case. The baseline case uh, is um, our being to quite a large extent, in this sense at least, if you will, at ease uh, with the world. Um, relative to the way in which we can normally find our way uh, around the world and unproblematically say things like, you know, I can smell the pig and so on and so forth, then we can start to say, oh, it looks, looks like something's gone wrong here. And what the skeptic does is overgeneralize that kind of conclusion. And I think Hillary makes it a kind of overgeneralization also from that kind of conclusion. And I think, I'm not sure, but the risk it seems to me you might be running is that you also make a kind of overgeneralization, but you say, actually, we can sort of validate um, the, the senses, but I want to say, uh, how are we going to ever get into a position where we can sort of validate them as a whole? Where would we be? Where would we stand? It sounds like we're trying to imagine ourselves as, as gods. Come, or come to the like lab. That. I can. We can. You can mess with the senses very easily in a controlled way, and we can show exactly when they fit and when they don't fit, and just. Uh, yes, but of just course, but of course, in every one of your experiments, you're actually relying completely uh, and unproblematizing your senses. 
There can't be any such thing as experiments which don't take for granted the verdict of the senses. Well, let's, let's, let's... I mean, when you look at the yes, readings on the machines and so on and so that's forth... That's a different... No, it's not. That's the issue. That might be a different that's discussion, that. but... That is the issue, philosophically. Right. No. I'm, I'm kind of interested that Ophelia wants that distinction, which you're resisting uh, a little bit, between we've got cases where they fit, we've got cases where they don't. You can uh, adjust a few variables in the experiment, and then you find out that you put the, what you're seeing, what you're feeling at a mismatch, and you might trust your, your touch or you might trust your sight. But, Hillary, doesn't that talk uh, seem problematic for you, given that Ophelia is relying on the fact that sometimes we are getting valid fit, whereas I think you want to say all of it is out of touch with what we can claim about reality? Well, I, I, I'd, I'd accept some of the things that Rupert is trying to say. It's just that I think that this uh, attack applies to himself as well. And uh, as I do with Wittgenstein, I think Wittgenstein falls to the very self-reference that he, he identifies in the Tractatus. And, and, um, but I'm trying to avoid uh, you getting uh, into Wittgenstein interpretation. I'm not. Come I, back I, to I wasn't, I wasn't yeah, going to. Ophelia's so, point. So I, I think, yes. So I think, so while on the one hand, I want to say I don't think you can abandon metaphysics altogether and just somehow wander around in the language game, um, I, I also think that, that from a scientific point of view, you don't, I'd like to encourage Ophelia to think, I don't think you need to have the idea of an ultimate reality in order to be able to improve our models and make them more powerful. And I think that the idea that the models um, uh, are, are trying to somehow get closer and there's a true one is sometimes a, a constraint on how you can come up with new scientific metaphors for the world and that we do better just to give up on that, that, that sort of idea in favor of simply trying to make our models uh, as effective as possible and to recognize that there can be competing and conflicting models, that they don't all have to fit together into some grand single story. So you know, the attempt to create a theory of everything no, we don't need a theory of everything. We're not going to find one. And, uh, and we can have uh, competing and separate models in different area and just give up on this idea that we're getting somehow cr but closer what, to some what, ultimate what truth. Makes, what makes a model better? I mean, suppose Ophelia is modeling our system of touch or the relationship between touch and sight. And she thinks, presumably, that, that, that if you're getting better, you're getting closer to how the sensors are functioning and what they put you in touch with, no? Well, first, there's a way in which I, I fear that you know, people think about the senses as if it was a little inferential homunculus that is getting data and then making sense of it as we make sense of things at the, the conscious level. They're not like that. The, the, the thing that you're, you're suggesting about the multiplicity of models, when you look at Bayesian models, of, you just do probability estimation over multiple and multiple and multiple hypotheses. And then you just combine them in different ways. And I mean, there are lots of competing models and so on. But or at the very early level, this plurality of interpretations is taken into account, which explains why you can flip interpretation because suddenly one interpretation becomes more likely than the other. Yep. So, and it's, a, it's probably a very can robust way of... Can of you give us an example? Break it down for us. So you might just think at the, at the, the beginning, for, for instance, you, have, uh, uh, you feel uh, something touching you and you know, it's, it's not very clear what it is. 
uh, and you don't know whether you're touched by one object or two objects. So you're computing the probability that you've been touched by two objects and that one is cold, the other is warm, the, other, the two are cold, the two are warm. And you're actually computing all these likelihoods at the very early sensory levels. And then you're integrating this probability and finding the optimal decision. That optimal decision might be just not exactly true of what there is, but given the, the sensory evidence, it is probably the optimal way of making sense of it. Now, I give you a little more evidence, and I can switch suddenly your interpretation and your optimal decision very easily. And this, the fact that our sensory systems always follow these rules of optimality, I think is telling us something very important about this degree of fit. And contrary to what you were suggesting, these things are not just done as a kind of early 20th century where the scientist is just sitting next to the microscope. We're actually making predictions. I mean, you, you have data, and then you have models which are predicting what is coming. So it's not just relying on the sensory evidence that you're collecting. I mean, it's much more model-based and, and, and... My I point think, was, you, you never abstract from that. You always rely on it fundamentally, except whenever it gets called into doubt. That's the philosophical point. I'm not following that, so what's that? <laughs> and, and I just want to say, yeah. I think that if you think of this, if we get nitty-gritty, I'd like to get nitty-gritty, because I, I think... In a way, <laughs> the bizarre thing is, although I'm a non-realist, I actually want to make a, 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 a philosophical theory which is scientifically valuable. So I'm interested in being able to apply the account that I've given to, say, artificial intelligence and how we might be able to understand things. So I think that um, the, if you take an array of visual data uh, and you uh, apply the principle of closure, which is that you say, find something that is the same here, so all, all that the computer is doing is trying to s find something that it regards as being the same. Um, there are, of course, an indefinite number of things that could be regarded as the same, patterns that could be created from the data, different ways of patterning that information in the light of this notion of sameness, whatever, whatever that, just in the same way as I say that the, you know, we hold collections of neurons as being one thing, a line. Well, of course, they're not one thing. There's all sorts of other stuff going on in, in, in there. So uh, I think that there are an indefinite number of different ways of closing the uh, preliminary level of sensory information. Um, and the question, the, the puzzle from an artificial intelligence point of view is how out of this almost infinite number of different ways of, 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 of closing the sort of raw material, as it were, um, we choose one which, which uh, is most useful. And uh, I think humans have done that because we've got uh, the whole history of evolution, which has devised uh, uh, an organism which has the right sort of responses to be able to in intervene. Uh, and w on top of that, we have all of our but social why, closures, why which, which helps us get to a point where we've, where we've got this remarkable series of metaphors, which enables us to uh, do all of the things that we can do. But let's not imagine that we've somehow captured the world. You know, the world is fortunately hugely richer and has hugely more potential than the fantastically limited set but of closures that we've got. Do, do, do we need anything more, more definite? Surely we need e enough precision as to manage our relations with the world. I mean, it might be an ambition of philosophers and indeed of theorists to think that they can hold the whole vision of reality in all of its wonderful myriad ways it is and could be in a, in a theory. But I'm wondering whether, you know, the, the question for you is why do we seem to reach closure or close on things which, A, are pretty uh, 
robust and have been around for a long time. You know, they, 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 they resist a lot of uh, easy change. And why is it that they seem to close on ways in which human beings agree with each other? Couldn't it be that the best explanation of that is because they're really doing a good job in putting us enough in touch with those bits of our environment and reality that affect us and sustain us? Well, I think they're doing a fantastic job, but I don't think that they are, they're still flags. They're not the wind. Flags or just wind from Hillary, yeah. Ophelia? <laughs> I'm still puzzled because you see, man, that's, that's how you started, by recognizing that, that our senses are causally impacted. So what's, if the question is about the relation, there is, a, there is a causal relation between our senses and the world. And, and out of this chains of causes and impacts, we get a lot of information. Mm. But let's not think that the information is the world. So no one thinks that the firing of the neuron is, is found in the world. You don't find neurons firing out there. The neuron is a response. Except in brains, uh, right? Well, yeah, in brains, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. true. Of the world. But it's, it's a response to the world, just in the same way as the flag moving is a response to the wind. It doesn't matter how much you look at the flags. It doesn't matter how complicated they get. You're never going to get to the wind. But it doesn't mean to say that they're not immensely powerful. You know, our responses are immensely powerful. And, 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 we have to to and, and we can build our yeah. stories and accounts and our scientific theories about how they're working as well. But, but I w what I want to get to, again, is this idea that we're supposed to be radically limited. And you, you give this sort of rich sort of metaphorical uh, uh, description. Uh, you know, it's rich out there. We are radically limited. So uh, here's a limitation that we are subject to, right? We can't see the infrared part of the spectrum, right? But actually, you already know, just from me having said the infrared part of the spectrum, uh, all of you in this room will know something about what I mean. Some of you in this room might know a great deal about it. In other words, we know an enormous amount about what the infrared spectrum is, about what's there, what's there to see there, what gets seen there, etc., etc. How are we radically limited? Well, because that's one set of closures of one organism on one planet in one part of the universe. Well, but, but and, 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 and I don't think there's I can't give you every example at once. Uh, uh, I don't think that's one example. I could multiply them inf infinitely. And if every, you can't say about every single example I give you, oh, well, that's only one example. Sorry, how do you mean? It's oh, an exa oh, example of how we're not radically limited. Wouldn't right? the example we're do? Not, I mean, yeah. look, Hillary, um, I, it, it, I, if I understand the dialectic, uh, when, when Rupert says we know more about the world than the things we merely see or touch or taste yeah. or smell, but we know it because we've got theories that do a pretty good job of explaining how other creatures might respond to these uh, phenomena. And, and, and isn't, isn't your answer got to be it's still going wrong there rather than saying, but that's very limited. There are many, many other things that we haven't considered. Just, just considering that, what's wrong in this description? Why, why won't that do as saying, yeah, our theories are giving us a pretty good account of what we do, what we don't do, and what other creatures might do? They're giving us a pretty good account of how we can intervene in the world. I'm very happy with that. Um, uh, I don't see why we should make a why do you rather make bizarre sort of uh, jump to imagine that our responses to the world somehow enable us to see how the world is. But it's not a bizarre is. jump, Hillary. The onus of the burden of proof is on you because you're making the revisionist claim, right? It's perfectly ordinary, commonsensical. Everyone in this room basically knows, before they came into this room at least, that they know something about the infrared spectrum. The, only, the burden of proof is on you to tell them, no, actually, they don't. So how are you going to do that? 
I mean, it's so your, your example. I mean, infrared spectrum is part of a something that we call science. It's a collection of um, ways of holding the world, which has proved to be immensely valuable. Um, uh, because, uh, because, why is it valuable? It, it, it's valuable because we found that when we use it, we're able to do things. So isn't that putting us in touch with the things we're doing things to? Okay. When, uh, when we, um, there's a, there's a, a gr great scene in, in a film called My Beautiful Mind. And uh, I think the, the main character who has uh, schizophrenia or something, some of you will have seen it. Um, and he's showing off to his girlfriend and, and he takes her out and they, they look at the stars and uh, he, he has great ability to find patterns. And he says her name a pattern. And she says an umbrella and he scans it, oh look, there. And um, then she says, name something else. And she looks up and says, oh, an octopus. And he said, no, there. Well, so you think that's not all we ever it's, do? It's not, it's you think not, that's all we ever do? Find patterns arbitrarily like that? It's not surprising. It's not surprising that he can do that because there's an infinite number, well, an in, indefinite number of patterns, if patterns in the stars, more than there are particles in the universe. And the fact that they don't have anything directly in common with the stars doesn't mean to say they're not useful. Once you've identified the umbrella, you can say, oh, just look to the right-hand side of the umbrella. Look at that star over there. You can track the umbrella across the sky. So Hillary, you, you can pattern all of the sky and use it to navigate around the world. But nobody thinks that the umbrella and the rose and the plow are yeah. what's out there. So we take your metaphor seriously. You think that's all we ever do. You think that all human knowledge is as good as astrology, basically. You have a very, very low opinion of human capabilities for knowledge or understanding. No, this isn't astrology. This is about navigation. But why do we navigate? Navigation around the world. And I think, I think that the, the closures of science you've had are metaphors in exactly the same way. But, but, uh, and and, and but, those but metaphors exactly are, the ways, way. are ways of closing the world. Hold and on. we refine Hold them on. over time. Uh, and we can that. refine them better and better. We've got closure, um, <laughs> yeah. I think. But, but yeah. um, Ophelia, I mean, sh surely the patterns that we might find in the stars, not all of them are going to be useful for navigation. There have to be ones which relate not just to how the stars are now, but how they're going to be in an hour's time when you're sailing due north or west or whatever. Yeah, so there will be that difference, but also I was interested in the way you were explaining the <laughs> or describing the, the scene. I mean, that's the idea, is that there is a, a common agreement between the two persons talking when you say the umbrella and you point. You so there it. must be something which is enabling that calibration. Yes. And not anything will do. I think uh, we, I, we just uh, that the, so again, uh, you know, that's that's and, and it might be just a narrow set of, of of yeah. things out there that can yeah. enable the number of, yeah. of human beings on the planet to agree upon no, things no. like colors and things like that. that. That's absolutely right. It's a very, very good point because I think that often, again, there's a misunderstanding when uh, my, my critics read what I was saying is, oh, you can make up anything. You can make up any old metaphor, but you can't because some of them uh, uh, you, can, you can get to work, you can get them to do something and some that you can't. But the mechanism of how, somehow, what it is out there that is enabling them to work or not is, I think, in a Wittgensteinian sense, beyond our closure, beyond our language. We can't say what makes it work because that would be to hop outside of our closures. So, yes, w there is constraint on the metaphors that we use. Although, interestingly enough, I think you can, you can find uh, a way of holding almost any metaphor. 
You know, so if I said, you know, this room, you know, this room is a rhinoceros, you know, you might think, well, that's pretty tricky. I mean, I could obviously say this tree is a house and find, find a way of uh, making sense of that. So I'd say, well, it is a house. It's a house for all of the that people who live in it. That wouldn't help you with but doing lots of things with the room, right? I mean, sorry? it's better to think it's a room if you want to navigate around than yes, thinking but, you're inside the rhinoceros. But, but, but <laughs> I could give you, uh, I could, I could f provide you with a way of using that metaphor. I could say, well, it's a rhinoceros because it's calm on the outside but there's all sorts of potential <laughs> for violence to break out. And, and, and so you all go, yes, I see, I see your metaphor now. And then maybe we could use this rhino and apply it to other, uh, other spaces. We could divide spaces which are more, more or less rhino-ish. And maybe that vocabulary would become, would congeal and it would become the dominant use of the word rhinoceros. So and, and our normal use of it, which is to do with the animal, would somehow become less important. But so what we've, have we we've got? We've just got a way of holding a space okay. so it can be valuable. Got it. So everything's a rhinoceros, plus or minus more violent things that may break out. Join me as I invite you to thank our speakers, uh, Ophelia Derois, Rupert Reed, and Hilary Lawson. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.